And here we are, another edition of Observations. I'm Rob Leifeld. Welcome to the show. We got another uh, exciting show for you today. We are continuing on our series of comic book feuds because so much of these feuds uh, 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 created and forged and inspired uh, great works that followed. I have really no interest in litigating these feuds. The feuds are the headlines that created the separation, maybe in some cases some drama, that then resulted in new works being uh, created, uh, new new um, directions being forged. And and uh, again, whenever we the, the feuds, I mean it's a it's a sexy name, and each of these are in fact feuds that I'm sharing with you across this series. We've done Alan Moore versus the world where, you know, his beefs with Marvel and DC extended fairly along the, lo- the lines of his entire career. I mean, he, uh, from 1988 on, like, you know, Alan was feuding with two of the major publishers and along the way we detailed how eventually DC Comics would obtain an entire line of his work, uh, and, 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 and there was a quote unquote firewall erected to, to preserve Alan's kind of outlook on the entire matter. But the entire time he was working for DC comics and he knew it and it makes kind of that feud even more interesting, if not more amusing. So that was one of our feuds that we've covered recent, another recent episode, uh, that, that we tackled was the feud that broke apart the greatest team in comic books, John Byrne and Chris Claremont, uh, created unbelievable magic. And and that was spurned on by me (laughs) obtaining yet another amazing addition of their works together. There is nothing I own more of, no no more quantities that I have on my bookshelves than reprints of Chris Claremont, John Byrne in their extended X-Men run. It is uh, still, I believe, the peak, the pinnacle that every comic book is reaching for. Uh, I, I right after that is Frank Miller's Daredevil. They're they're neck and neck for me, but uh, pivotal. They happened when I was coming of age with comics, and they have never, in my opinion, been surpassed. In fact, as we've covered in some other uh, podcasts that detail the evolution of of, of Marvel's handling of the X Men, so much eventually became sequels to the work that they did. But when you create a body of work that generates the Hellfire Club, that generates Alpha Flight that generates Dark Phoenix, that generates Days of Future Past, Proteus, Kitty Pride, um, the the very popular crafting of Wolverine's entire persona. That is going to be a legendary uh, body of work. And, and as gentlemen, fans, women, gentlemen alike, uh, get older who came of age of that and, and, and uh, our love of it is going to become even more precious because we are so excited to share it with you. And when I look at it, and as I, as I, since I did that episode recently, I obtained another original page of art from that run. And it is literally as dynamic, the illustration, the, the, the storytelling, the drawing, the inking, the, the, the craft on that page exceeds anything that I am seeing currently by anyone in my field, including myself. Of course, it is, uh, the, 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 it's, it was just a magic era, but it, it, it broke apart over creative friction. Today's feud is uh, one maybe you didn't know about, 
but it was an important pivot uh, and, and, and kind of really created this, this, this new uh, bubble, this new path for the comics industry. And it was, it was on the back of one superstar talent, he being Michael Turner. Now, you may not have heard of Michael Turner um, in the last several years. Maybe if you're new, if you've come in in the last five or six years, you're not as aware of him as maybe you could be or you should be. Uh, Michael passed in the summer of 2008. And uh, it was literally, the news had um, reached everybody. It was Wizard World 2008, back when uh, the Chicago Wizard World show was still quite a uh, a formidable show and and that evening everyone kind of poured out their memories their love and their feelings of loss uh over the fact that mike had um finally passed mike uh was extremely talented and literally in the throes of of probably the strongest stretch in his professional career when um when when he was took ill to um to to cancer and and it it really is um, just completely unfortunate that that this uh, that that occurred, and 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 that that Mike was taken so young, and and everybody loved Mike, and and I'm going to tell you something, Mike was affable, he was um, congenial, and he was incredibly talented, and and uh, the, he had he lost a fairly long battle with cancer that took him, like I said, of which we were all informed in the summer of 2008. So here's the deal. Mike, let's, let's figure out a little about Mike Turner if you don't know about him. And, uh, and again, this, this episode focuses on a feud that Mike had with the studio that, 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 um, that he came up from with, uh, tutored by Mark Silvestri. Mike was a product of Top Cow and, and he was, the most, uh, I think, celebrated of all of the, you know, the young disciples, the the young um, proteges that that Mark uh, tutored, and and Mike came to prominence at Top Cow. He was one of the uh, young, uh, he was one of the young talents that broke through in the traditional fashion, as 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 guys like myself and Mark Silvestri did with sample pages. And, and refining your work. And, and in Mike's case, he was able to uh, go under the guidance and the leadership of, of Mark Silvestri, who, as you know, if you are a regular listener, I believe is the most talented of my peer group and is the most talented illustrator, uh, comic book storyteller of the last 25, 30 years. He is so ridiculously, immensely talented. And, uh, and, and, and he had possibly the strongest uh, group of, of, of burgeoning artists that came out under Top Cow. That would include uh, David Finch and, uh, and Joe Benitez. And they were, they were a really strong crop. You know, each of the studios had really strong crops. Extreme had um, Dan Fragut, Shep Yap, Marat Michaels, Jeff Matsuda. Wildstorm had J. Scott Campbell, had uh, Brett Booth, had Ryan Benjamin and Travis Charest. I forgot to mention Stephen Platt, that the three standouts at the three st studios, if you were to just bump into the casual uh, fan during that time, they would say Stephen Platt uh, was a standout at Extreme. Travis Charest was the standout at Wildstorm, and Mike Turner was the standout at Top Cow. And they wouldn't be wrong. Those were the guys that moved the biggest needles, influenced the most people, got the most people excited. Travis and Stephen Platt 
were products of DC and Marvel that Jim and I swooped in and hired away. Jim hired Travis after a maybe a year-long stint, less less than that, at uh, at DC Comics, and he was illustrating a book called Dark Stars. And Jim hired him, uh, had him come to La Jolla, uh, San Diego, be part of his Wildstorm studio. And obviously, Travis went on to really amazing uh, accomplishments artistically and was perhaps one of the biggest influences in the modern era. When you see the works of Jimmy Chung, Lanil Yu, Steve McNiven, you are seeing echoes of Travis, who has really not drawn a comic book in 20 years. And maybe his peak, most resonant period was in a five-year period from like 1995 to 2000. But to have still be inspiring people with your work as, as, as much as he has and does. Um, and there are others. Those are just Lanil and Steve McNiven, um, as well as, uh, as, as uh, Jimmy Chung. Those are just a few of, of many I could... I, I, Travis is one of the most influential. But again, he was part of... He had already gotten work and was working at DC. Stephen Platt was doing Moon Knight. He was getting a ton of attention. I reached out to him. I brokered a deal, and and Stephen moved to Anaheim to become part of Extreme Studios. And I worked with Stephen from 1994 to uh, until 1999. It was a six year, six year relationship that Stephen primarily worked just for me at Extreme Studios. Mike Turner was homegrown. He was grown within the system. He grew up in the Top Cow system, tutored again by. A talent as legendary with um, as much stature and influence as Mark Silvestri. The uh, I met Mark. I met Mike Turner uh, early in his career. Saw him at different shows. Uh, always was really sweet. What a, what a nice guy. What a what a what a friendly and talented young young guy. Uh, while he Mike came in uh, years after me, we were actually closer in age. Um, you know, two two young guys. I just had broken in as a teenager, and Mike was later in his twenties. But uh, we we were only separated by just a few years, and uh, I was a huge fan. At one point, there was discussion that he would come over and do three issues of Evangeline for Extreme Studios, and that caused a big skerfuffle. But here's the deal: I wasn't. I really didn't broker that deal. I signed off on that deal. Ironically, the guy who brokered the deal was Matt Hawkins, who has been. Uh, I don't know, CEO, publisher, editor-in-chief of Top Cow, whatever, whichever of those. It's an important title. I don't want to demean him by not giving him his proper due and his proper title. But Matt um, had come up through Extreme Studios and Awesome Comics and then has been with Top Cow for 24 years at least. And uh, prior to that, he Matt was the editor of Evangeline and we had talked, Matt and I, in his office about the uh, prospect because Mike was open to doing work for other people. And we opened that door. We made that offer. It was a three-issue miniseries. Mike was eager to do it, and then it was shut down. But it, there's nothing more dramatic than than what I just shared. I never spoke to, had a conversation with, phone call, interaction with Mike during that time about that. My editor was following up on obtaining uh, this detail and uh, of, of getting Mike as a talented penciler. Following that, I got to know Mike more often because I saw him on the convention trail, especially in the late 90s. I had a birthday party in 1997, I October 1997, I turned 30. I had a big swanky party at a rooftop, uh, you know, 
hotel restaurant in Los Angeles because our offices in Awesome at Awesome Comics were located in Los Angeles at the time. Mike, um, who was also really good friends with another uh, guy at Extreme named uh, named Dan Frega, they attended together. Mike gave me a beautiful Star Wars uh, trading card that he had drawn for the Tops trading card Star Wars line, and it was of the Emperor. I still have it. I love it. I cherish it. Uh, it's the Emperor standing in front of a TIE fighter uh, in what looks to be, you know, a uh, an Imperial setting. Um, this was before, you know, the prequels. It, 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 he drew that assignment. He drew, obviously, several different assignments for the top Star Wars set. But I was, you know, really shocked that he gave me this original, this piece of original art. And it, I, I, I cherish it still. And it was really fun to receive that. But... Um, my wife and I would um, go take trips down to the marina where he lived in Los Angeles and hang out with him and Dan Frega and Matt Hawkins and uh, on, on weekends. And I, I was in Mark Mike's uh, condo that down at the marina. And we were just, at that point, we were just um, peers in the late 90s. I did my thing. He did his thing. And again, he had great friendships with so many people that I was involved with. Mike uh, came to prominence when he drew the assignment to do Witchblade. Uh, at at Top Cow, Witchblade has many different creators. If I, I'm pretty sure it's Brian Haberlin, David Wall, Mark Silvestri. I'm not sure if Mike is in on that, um, but Mike was the penciler of Witchblade number one, and Witchblade was certainly a comic book that is memorable to Top Cow fans because it turned the fortunes of Top Cow Top Cow around. They became the preeminent kind of what you call bad girl book. Um, Bad Girl is in quotes. It is a genre. It is one that was being mined uh, at this point in the 90s. Lady Death, She, Vampirella were kind of the original trio. Um, Evangeline, which my company published, and then Witchblade would also crash that party. But Witchblade was just the right book, the right time, the right... Um, the right art. So much of it was Mike's visuals. He really was finding his voice and he was uh, doing these great illustrations and depicting Witchblade in just a very exciting fashion. And uh, was her name Sarah Penzini? I, I, you know, I don't have one in front of me, but the, the, the lead, whether she was as a female detective or as Witchblade, Mike never failed to draw her striking, strikingly. Um, it was his dynamics, his... Uh, his visual flair was not lost on anyone, least of all you, the fans, who dug him. And, and Witchblade became a top seller for um, Top Cow, and Mike did a ton of those issues. And along the way, Mike eventually launched his own book, uh, lost his, launched his own title within, um, uh, within Top Cow called Aspen. And Aspen... Uh, uh, was was a huge was a, a gigantic hit for uh, and again I'm, it, it might have been one of the biggest books you know uh, of 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 the year when it was um, when it was released I mean it was a huge huge deal and uh, it it was not called Aspen it was Fathom there within a sixty second correction you know you you can be safe that you know. I, I, I corrected myself. Fathom. Mike Turner's Fathom, okay? And uh, and, and and Fathom was a huge uh, hit 
for Top Cow. So now he had not just Witchblade under his belt, he had Fathom. And Fathom was this gigantic, um, gigantic hit for Top Cow. And again, I want to say it was one of the biggest books of the year. Um, Mike lived in the marina, looked out over the ocean, uh, created an aquatic-themed, female-driven character concept that again capitalized on his amazing visual uh, uh, instincts. And, and, and Mike drew beautiful women and drew, drew beautiful men and powerful women and powerful men. And, uh, and, and somewhere along the line, uh, Mike decides that he is going to leave and start his own label. Now, this is indicative of so many. It is the, um, you know, it, 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 it is the, the, the protege leaving the master. It is the student leaving the master. Okay. You know, what does Vader say to Obi-Wan in, in that, you know, hallway in the Death Star? He says, when I left you, I was but the student. Now I am the master, okay? Many times the student wants to best the master in order to kind of achieve the goal in his mind of, of, of that, that, that he's looking to, to, that's the success he's looking for. And so, uh, so, you know, for me, I was watching from afar and it just seemed to play out like so many different, um, you know, uh, uh, student-master relationships play out. For me, the biggest feud in my life that affected me as, as, as a person and really lingered with me was, and it's not comic book related, you're going to be shocked, it's Laker related, it's Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. They just could not seem to coexist. A lot. Many times I refer to a biblical uh, passage, a story. My dad was a minister. This, this, this always resonated with me when I was a kid. And of course, if you know the story of David, young David rises up to defeat the terrible giant Goliath, the warrior of the Philistines who is mocking Israel on a daily basis and making them look pathetic and and really um, backing the Israelites who at that point were led by King Saul into a into an embarrassing corner and, and they certainly had the might and the numbers and they had giants. They had Nephilim and Goliath was one of many brothers but he was the warrior brother Goliath and he taunted them and they would not send any warriors out to defeat him. But then of course we have the young David whose brothers were in the employ of the army that served King Saul and David shows up one day, I'm fast tracking this, and decides he's got God on his side and he can whoop Goliath's ass. And so they have their incredible showdown where with only a slingshot and a stone, he is able to fell the giant that is Goliath, kills him. And the part that everyone seems to leave out, he takes Goliath's sword and severs his head from his body and holds his head up for all to see that he not only killed Goliath, but he dismembered him. And uh, the head is now this giant trophy. And all of Israel celebrates the Philistines flee because they don't know what's going on here. If this kid can take down their giant. What what else is in store for them? So they le- they left, and Israel now has peace, and uh, and and there's a parade, and there's a parade in the streets of Jerusalem, and during that time, um, th- because th- it leads you to believe there was many parades, because because David was winning a lot of battles against a lot of Israeli Israel uh, enemies, enemies of the Israelites, and there's a certain passage where Saul and David are going through the streets and it says the celebrations for Saul were great, but the celebrations, the applause for David was greater. And Saul grew jealous and the jealousy consumed him. 
And I was always thinking of that. I think of that in, in times like this, but with Shaq and Kobe, especially. And Shaq would say things like, nobody appreciates the big man. Well, he's literally a Goliath in this instance. And Kobe is the kid who can score all over the place, mid-range jumpers, dunks, um, three-point shots, uh, that, that, that brilliant step back he had. Kobe was the whole deal. And I think Shaq was like, what the hell? I'm supposed to be the star of the Lakers. Why does the audience love Kobe? I attended those games. Kobe did get the biggest applause. Kobe did get the biggest responses. And, and Shaq said, nobody appreciates the big man. Nobody appreciates the big man. They take him for granted. Possibly they do. I had friends of mine who would joke with me that I, you know, loved Shaq as much as I did, but I also favored Kobe, Kobe, <laughs> Kobe Bryant over Shaq. But my friends would make fun of me and said, oh, Shaq, all he does is back down, back down, back down, dunk. They did this move that dismissed and really bought into the fact that he's just a lumbering giant. Everything comes easy for him. I think that's what Shaq was speaking to. With, uh, with uh, so many times in these feuds, it is the applause for one becomes greater than the other, and we don't know what circumstances lead to the resentment, the jealousy, but, but the, uh, the, the, the student often wants to best the master. It's, it's part of kind of lore and myth and history and legend. And so in this case, I'm not here to tell you why Mike and Mark fell out. That's not my business. All I know is what I'm going to read to you, which is the public filings of the two lawsuits that came in the summer of, in the, yeah, summer of 2003. Mike was leaving. He had certainly achieved all that he could possibly achieve at Top Cow. He gave them uh, all of his artistic blood, sweat, and tears in regards to Witchblade and took that to the top spot for them. And he then uh, created Fathom, which went and became a giant hit for them. Two hits in a row. Again, Mike is the biggest of the homegrown talent and was seen as kind of the inheritor or the second in line to Mark at, uh, at Top Cow. And here's the thing also, Mike was more prolific than Mark. I don't think that Mike was as artistically um, uh, on par with Mark because I, I don't think many are. I think Mark is a once in a generation talent. I think it weighs on him too how, how, how great he wants everything to look on the page because everything always looks so good on the page and so beautifully rendered. And Mark, as a result, Mark is not as prolific. Um, he was at one point, which is where he came to all of our prominence on the X-Men. But by this time, and Mark is, you know, at least, I think he's almost 10 years older than me, which means he's 10, 12 years older than Mike uh, at any point. So, you know, Mark is more of the elder statesman, still a monster talent, the best in the business. But Mike is more prolific. He's hungrier. He's producing more work. And oftentimes, the guy who produces more work is going to be the one that grabs the favor. And in this case, Mike definitely had the favor. Mike had launched Witchblade with them, doing Witchblade number one. The first appearance of Witchblade was in a book called Cyblade She that Mark drew. But the first issue of Witchblade is by Mark Mike Turner, and he continues to, again, draw that book, bring it to prominence. And then, uh, then he does Fathom. And Fathom was a big summer release. It was gorgeous. Again, Mike really flexing all that he was capable of. He definitely had found his artistic voice, the storytelling was beautiful it was creative it was just um each issue was just beautiful to to look upon i mean uh mike really was in the throes of his artistic abilities so then he wants to go off and do his own thing and he had announced that he was going to have his own company called aspen and i believe aspen's name 
Aspen is the name of the lead of the Fathom book, even though the book was called Fathom. And uh, he was going to take Fathom with him because he maintained that he created that book. Then he was going to have two new books, Soul Fire and Echoes. And these got, you know, announcements that made the rounds in the in the press. And then one day, uh, his book was not going to make it to market because Top Cow had informed, as I've covered in other uh, in other podcasts, that, that all you have to do when you have a falling out with Diamond is inform them. And they will, in fact, sit this out. They are not interested in... Um, in in they are not interested in in settling the feuds you settle the feud then you inform them that it's been settled and they'll distribute your book but they're not going to walk into a lawsuit well it's june 10th 2003 again i'm going to read you just the bare bones of these filings mike turner sues top cow okay uh it says right here from comic book resources a potentially nasty legal battle is brewing in the comic book industry and today, one of those party went public with the details. And it says, Michael Turner files federal lawsuit against Top Cow Production to protect his rights. And it says, Marina Del Rey, uh, you know, June 9th, 2003, Mike Turner files federal lawsuit against Top Cow. The complaint seeks to recover damages arising from the infringement of Mike Turner's trademark Fathom to enjoin Top Cow's future infringement of such trademark and to recover monies owed to Turner under his contract with Top Cow. Turner filed the lawsuit in light of the deterioration of the relationship with, between Turner and Top Cow and the threats of litigation being made by Top Cow. While the lawsuit is still ongoing, the intent of this press release is to clear up some questions and inconsistencies that, that have been floating around many message boards in the comics industry as of late. And uh, it says Mike Turner is the sole owner of the federally registered trademark for Fathom. It goes on to assert Mike's ownership of all these different properties and... Uh, the deal is that uh, Diamond was not going to release this Aspen number one. Mike Turner presents Aspen number one because Top Cow had alleged that they shared some rights of those characters. So here we go. Three days later, June 13th, 2003, Top Cow countersues Aspen, Mike Turner. And again, Comic Book Resources has had the press release it says following the events of earlier this week top cow has filed a countersuit against aspen regarding rights to a number of properties including fathom okay and here it is uh the letter from top cow leading into their filing uh by now you're all aware of the growing legal rift between top cow productions and aspen mlt we understand that this must be frustrating and confusing for all of you we'd like to go on record as saying we are dismayed and frustrated as well at this unfortunate necessary turn of events while both the Aspen lawsuit and Top Cow's countersuit are now public record, there seems to be confusion on certain issues. We are here to clear those up. And then they make their assertions. And guess what? If you want to read about those, they're there. It's a Google away. Um, again, I'm reading them. So you think, Rob's not making this up, right? Because, again, i got to bring the receipts or this is no good. 2003, within three days of each other, Mike, Turn Mike Turner sues his former kind of home employer, uh, and then Top Cow countersues him. Now, guess what? It all settles in the end. But in the interim, that created an opening. And in that opening, in that lawsuit, and this is why we're discussing this feud. This is the reason that this feud is of interest. Mike had not done any extended work for anyone else but Mark Silvestri and Top Cow. And then was preparing to launch his own universe, Echo Soulfire, to accompany Fathom. For whatever reason, and it's not my business, and I'm not here again to litigate it, Mark and Mike had a falling out. 
people have fallings out. They they then, you know, can come back together at a later time or they just kind of go their separate ways. In this instance, I'm here to talk about what happened in that instance that this feud went down because what happened was Mike is now no longer drawing for Top Cow, neither is he able to draw for his own publication because Diamond was not releasing anything that Aspen was putting out. They took a, uh, a, a an allotment of books that was, and, and Aspen claims that those books were, you know, sitting in the warehouse waiting to be distributed. They had been produced. Mike had invested his, his uh, had investment in creating and producing those comic books. They'd been printed. They'd been boxed. They'd been delivered to the distributor to then go out to all the different stores. Top Cow, by filing their um, motion or sending a letter of dispute to Diamond, stopped those books from being distributed. Hence, Mike then sues. Hence, Top Cow countersues. Mike is now a guy who's not able to produce any work. He's caught in a quagmire until this works itself out. And it will. They will ultimately settle out and move on with their lives. But the key of this feud is it created an opening that I believe changed where comics were at that point, at that time. This is how influential I believe Mike Turner became. Uh, Mike represented a certain style. His characters were tall. They were long, sometimes lanky, never Never anything but super attractive, fit, um, broad shoulders, pecs for, for the men, very slender, you know, voluptuous bodies on the women. It was it was very much a, a, a uh, he had distilled everything that people loved about the 90s into a very smooth brew. His artwork was very smooth and, and, um, and slick and polished to look at, but it absolutely embodied, embodied, <laughs> embodied. I like that term. Embodied. He absolutely embodied so much of what people loved about the 90s. The strong men, the strong women, the big splashy images. He could do big splashy pages and design big splashy shots on a page. As I've discussed so often why Image Comics grabbed so many of your attention and so many attention of the fans at the time is because the way that we presented the pages broke the mold of the standard grid. Eight panel, four panel, six panel grid. And Mike was so good at picking this up. But uh, he was ne- he had not done this for Marvel or DC. Enter Joseph Loeb III, known to you as Jeff Loeb, and DC Comics, who, as I understand it, from what Mike told me at the time, both Marvel and DC immediately made moves on him. Sensing, seeing this quagmire, and uh, comic books is always about talent and the talent arms race. They pivot, and they move... Uh, move in, you know, to sign the talent that is now up for grabs. Because again, Mike has been kind of put in an, into a limbo. His former home is not available to him. His new home is kind of uh, in this, we'll call it extended escrow. It, it hasn't closed yet. So in that, into that breach comes Jeff Loeb and DC Comics and they get the deal done faster and they sign Mike to a contract where he will immediately begin producing books. For DC and the author that will usher him in to those uh, th- those worlds is Jeff Loeb, who was celebrated coming off Batman Hush. Following Batman Hush, which was the reintroduction of Jim Lee to the comic book world following his sale uh, of Wildstorm to DC Comics, Jim kind of went into a self-imposed exile for the better part of three years. And when he came out, it was with Hush. He had done some short stories and some covers, 
but nothing, no extended body of work. He did that extended body of work with Jeff Loeb when they did Batman Hush. And Batman Hush was really special given that Jeff Loeb had become the premier Batman scribe during that time. He had filled the void that Frank Miller had left behind. He and Tim Sale did their two 12-issue maxi-series. First, The Long Halloween, followed later by Dark Victory, both incredibly celebrated. And um, I could tell what Jim was drawn to, especially with what Jim Jeff was doing with Tim on those uh, those Dark Victory and Long Halloween assignments, those, those breathtaking jobs. Jeff always let his artists flex splash pages, big splashy images. Jeff understood the appeal of the visuals. He understood the appeal of the image aesthetic on a page. And some of my favorite Tim Sale stuff is the big open stuff that Jeff gave him to draw on both Long Halloween and Dark Victory. And this time he was going to give it to a master of the image kind of aesthetic to Jim Lee. And so he and Jim do Hush, another 12-issue epic, except rather than being a standalone miniseries, this took place in the comics of the regular, the, the extended Batman series, the legacy series of the regular monthly Batman. And 12 issues in, it was Hush. The follow-up to Hush, and I know Jeff was really hopeful that he would do Superman with Jim Lee, but he did not. Jim opted to go with Brian Azzarello, um, I know Jeff was very eager to do Batman with Jim, but Jim, who had the power, and he absolutely had the power, he chose Azarello to do that 12-issue Superman follow-up, where then Jim now was off with a different writer. Jeff Loeb then pitched Dan DiDio, who he had uh, a very close relationship at the time. He pitched to him that he would do a reboot of World's Finest, which they hadn't published in a while. World's Finest was a comic that had been published seemingly forever. It's all I remember seeing as a kid. DC Comics, World's Finest was always Superman and Batman. Together they were World's Finest. It was the Dark Knight Detective and, you know, the Man of Steel. And they always combined on an adventure in every episode of World's Finest. But World's Finest had been shut down in favor of all manner of different books and moves back in the mid-80s, and it was time to try it again, but this time they were going to call it Superman Batman, not World's Finest, Superman Batman. That book launched with Ed McGinnis and a six-part kick-ass story that involved Captain Marvel slash Shazam, Hawkman, um, just all manner of great guest stars, Metallo. It, it was a romp. Jeff really was like, well, if I'm not going to do Superman stories, with, uh, with with Jim Lee because Jeff had come off of a long extended run on the Superman book as, as well and, and Ed McGinnis was one of those guys who was drawing that book with him, who was doing that book with him um, and uh, I, 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 there, there, there's some great just standalone Superman episodes issues from that run um, but now it was time for the two of them to come together and launch Superman Batman and lo and behold Superman Batman would actually outsell the Superman Jim Lee um, Azarello story. So, so Jim had found his follow-up with Azarello, and Jeff had found his follow-up with Superman Batman, a brand new book. And Jeff's love for the DC characters and love for Superman and Batman and World's Finest was really the driving force. And now he had Ed McGinnis, a familiar um, collaborator. They did Fighting American for me at Awesome. Uh, obviously, they had done this extended Superman run. Um, with uh, over at DC Comics, and now they were doing Superman, Batman. But the second arc is the arc that just 
took that book to the moon and back, gave it the boost, the sales. I talk all the time about us image guys in the 80s and 90s getting on those books and giving those surges. Amazing Spider-Man got the McFarlane surge. New Mutants got the Liefeld surge. X-Men got the Jim Lee surge. Well, Superman Batman, that second arc, is by Mike Turner. It is what we call the Supergirl arc. It introduced Supergirl, reintroduced her into the mythos, giving her a brand new origin. She's being hunted. Uh, Darkseid is hot on her trail. Superman and Batman discover her in their first chapter of this adventure. They then take her to Paradise Island. She trains among the Amazons. I mean, this is tailor-made for Mike Turner's eye-popping visuals. His Superman is tall and lean. Generally, when you break into the field, and, and we all learn this from how to draw comics the Marvel way, your average comic book superhero should be seven to eight heads tall, which they say, you know, the average... Man is like six heads tall, so a comic book superhero should be in the seven to eight heads tall. Mike drew his guys like nine heads tall. They were tall. They were broad. I drew tall, broad people at one point too, but Mike was now the new continuation. The reason that I'm really focused on this one seminal move, this one pivot that happened because of the feud with Top Cow and Mike Turner is that Mike's work hit the mainstream in a way that it had not previously. He... Witchblade and, and Fathom were mainstream hits, but now he's drawing DC Comics. He's drawing Supergirl, Batman, Wonder Woman, you know, uh, uh, Darkseid. Um, it, it's just amazing. Everything Mike draws looks fantastic. And seeing his work on the classic icons and seeing his 90s aesthetic put on them in 2003, 2004, here's the deal. That period, and I can attest to this, I think I've spoken on this show how I went to com um, Comic-Con in disguise. <laughs> in, in 2001, I went to com Comic-Con in disguise. I, uh, I wore glasses. I wore a hat that was pushed down almost to, to my eyebrows. Um, I wore a, a button-down shirt, pants. I had a bag draped diagonally across my chest. I dressed and looked differently. I actually had bought a hat with a mullet hair and I was planning on wearing that, but it looked ridiculous. And then I realized, I think I can pull this off by not looking like the way that you would familiar, familiarize Rob Liefeld with. And in fact, I fooled my friends. I fooled my friend's parents. I fooled professionals, peers, image partners who I stood right next to listening to their conversations and they did not know or recognize me. Again, I had glasses I had a hat pulled all the way down to my eyebrows and uh, I just dressed in a button-down shirt. I dressed, I looked differently. I sat next to both DC and Marvel tables as they reviewed talent and one editor in particular said, hey, hey, don't do this. This is like image style. We don't want this crap. We do not want this crap. Do not show us this. We want you to draw from life. We want life drawing. We want things that look like photographs. This would also be repeated, but both Marvel and DC were doing this at their tables. It was like there was a message out and it was, and the message was clear. We don't want that image crap anymore. During this time, Mark was mostly in retirement. He would come out in 2003, 2004 to do an X-Men storyline with Grant Morrison, but he was kind of in, in hibernation. I was in hibernation. I had retired for three years. I didn't draw comics for three plus years. Todd McFarlane wasn't drawing comics. J. Scott Campbell wasn't drawing comics. Dale Keown wasn't drawing comics. Um, really, the last guy that was drawing any comics, uh, Jim Lee was in exile during this period. He doesn't come out until late in 2002, in, the, in late fall 2002 with Hush. 
which then runs all the way through 2003. You have to know all of the kind of architects of the image style were tired. I tell everybody, we were burned out. We ran fast and hard. We burned bright and we all needed our rest. We had just kind of come to the end of our rope at that period. And uh, the 90s were that nuts and crazy. And uh, and I've covered that all all through different various episodes and and we'll continue to cover it because the image 30th anniversary is coming up and boy, do I have stories that you're going to want to hear. But for these purposes, a 90s style artist on mainstream comics was not really, um, what, what was, was not, um, was not common from about 2000 to 2003. You had John Romita Jr. doing Spider-Man and Hulk. You had Frank quietly, you know, doing, um, doing, uh, X-Men Ian Churchill, who had come from the 90s, took a very quiet approach, actually was trying to more emulate what Frank Quietly was doing on the X-Men when he did his X-Men run with Joe Casey in the early 2000s. Ironically, he would be the Supergirl artist when they launched Supergirl out of this Mike Turner, Superman, Batman storyline, and he would draw like Mike Turner, exactly enforcing what I'm telling you. The style that Mike did reminded people we like this stuff. We like when our comic books are more like candy and they're rich and sugary and sweet. In this case, they're big, they're strong, they're long, they're lean, they're splashy. What I always say, and I told my friends, um, it's time to splash again. You know, comic books had, had forgotten how to splash. Mike Turner never forgot how to splash. And now that he was not on an Aspen comic or he was not on a Top Cow comic, he was drawing DC comics and he had the biggest guns in their arsenal. At the same time, Mike was doing covers for a huge crossover that DC was producing called Identity Crisis. And uh, the, the, the covers that he was doing for Identity Crisis were driving people bonkers. Um, they were just, they were amazing and people were just like, oh my gosh, I've got to get this for the cover. I've got to get this for the cover. Mike took on a lot of cover work at that point for DC Comics. And again, he became a superstar in a way that he had never before, and he was a big star. But as as he never shone more bright than when he teamed with Jeff Loeb and they did this extended Superman-Batman arc, and I could not have gotten more out of their collaboration, the big, splashy, wonderful images. I mean, he literally, Superman-Batman during that time posted sales greater than Jim's book, which was the top book at DC prior to that. Mike became all the rage and eventually, following DC after a few years, started doing a ton of covers for Marvel Comics. By the time we're reaching 2005, 2006, Mike is doing X-Men covers, Ultimate X-Men covers, Wolverine covers, and uh, Mike is being courted by everyone. When I tell you that prior to his untimely, um, you know, cancer diagnosis, which slowed him down and, and ultimately, as I said, regrettably uh, took him from us. Uh, he was the biggest new thing comics had seen. Completely homegrown, completely grown in the lab of Mark Silvestri and all that Top Cow had to offer. Uh, the, 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 the lawsuits, the showdown with Top Cow created this pivot and this you know, other path that he certainly wasn't going to be on. He was going to do Echoes, uh, which which looked to be very um, a, a bunch of kind of 
animal-alien hybrids, fantasy world, Soulfire, which which another fantasy world. Mike, Mike was going to do these kind of fantasy comics. And, and, of course, he was taking Fathom with him and continuing those adventures. And Mike had other talents that were working with him, and he was going to expand and, and create his own label. But, but having that being parked by these um, lawsuits that I read to you, again, 2003, June, June 10th, June 13th, Top Cow files a suit in response on the 13th to the suit Mike filed on the 10th, and they are at loggerheads. So uh, Mike goes into this DC realm, and he never looks back. And people flip out. And I'm telling you, I believe, for my my phone rang during this time, uh, Marvel Comics, C.B. Sabowski. They said, Rob, would you come back? Would you do covers? Would you do a new X-Force miniseries? And um, I really put that at the feet of Mike and his influence. That people loved his splashy 90s style art. And look, I'm not I'm not taking away from Mike's art. Mike had a very unique style, but it owed absolutely so much to the aesthetics, the dynamics of what people loved in 90s comics. And and people look, I'm on the convention trail, I'm online, I'm I talk to you guys. You guys know what a 90s comic looked like. And you also know that in the early 2000s, that vow to create more realistic comics was was a thing. Partially also inspired by everyone's um preference that if you could get these books to look like Alex Ross drew them, that's what the editors want. Everybody wanted a more realistic tone. And they got their chance. They had their opening. They did their best with it from 2000 to 2003. Then again, Mike Turner is unleashed and these very long, very broad, I'll call them sexy men, sexy women. They're both sexy. Very tight costumes on both. I mean, Superman's pecs were as big as any female that Mike drew. He drew very defined muscle and fitness men. His Batman was as fit as any Batman I'd ever seen, and that includes Jim Lee's. And they were unique. They looked like, you know, Mike and that spit curl and that square jaw, the way he drew Superman and his his uh, his depiction of Batman. They were just very unique and, and very fun to look at, and he had a very realized style. And he blew up. And uh, people literally anointed him because the fans always make the decision. The fans are always the ones that come out in force to show you what they prefer and what they love. And uh, and so in this instance, Mike carried the day Supergirl and the return of Supergirl, she she had a moment. She suddenly become became the hottest thing on planet Earth, so much so that DC gave her a Supergirl spinoff. They hadn't planned that prior to this arc with Jeff Loeb reintroducing Supergirl. And uh, in this giant story with Darkseid and, 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 and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. But the demand was there, so Mike does all the covers. Ian Churchill is tapped to away from Marvel, where he was doing some X-Men books, to now do Supergirl. Mike did, Mike Turner did all the Supergirl covers, and Ian is drawing the interiors. And they absolutely, obviously Jeff is writing the book, but Ian is now buying into the Mike Turner aesthetic and doing more 90s style splashier work than I'd ever seen anything Ian do before. And that includes the books that he was doing with me uh, at Awesome Comics with The Coven. And uh, Ian was very much, had, had, had followed in the path of what Turner was accomplishing, accomplishing with his commercial sensibilities. And Supergirl launched out of the gates very strong and again, those Mike Turner covers, just like those Identity Crisis covers. Mike's covers on books were moving needles. People were buying just for his covers. And that's when you know it's about the artist 
first, foremost, and always. So, look, by the fall of uh, of 2003, you know, uh, I think they, they both decided to, to put their differences behind them. And, and another random Google search will bring up the fact that uh, they settle, you know. Um, it, it says in September 30th, so one, you know, one day before October, Aspen Comics spokesman Frank Mastromaro has announced that Top Cow and Aspen Comics have resolved their disputes over the rights created by Aspen's Mike Turner. And uh, Aspen number one will now ship to retailers in October. Issues two and three will be in November and December. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, it says Mike will continue to work on the various DC projects that he's been announced as Mike is doing the six issues of Batman Superman. So that echo, that June, July, August, September, those months... That's when an entirely new path was opened to Mike Turner. And he truly, really never looked back. Like I said, I, I believe before he passed, he was talking about doing a Wolverine arc with Jeff Loeb. I had seen some art from it. It was fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Mike, uh, I have no doubt that Mike would have gone on to become as big and as shiny and as bright and as brilliant a star as he had ever been. Maybe he had, he would have been the biggest name ever in the history of comic books. Again, he was, he had a great smile. He was affable. He was kind. He was, um, funny. Uh, and, and the, the fans loved him and his art. And so again, um, rest in peace, Mike Turner, 2008. Um, he was, um, taken from this earthly plane, but not before he did, uh, he had a dramatic impact on the comic book landscape and this feud with Top Cow that, that really in, in, you know, in its entirety maybe took six months because obviously there was stuff going on behind the scenes before the filings and the storming out. And, and Mike was, had announced Aspen until then the books which were printed were stalled and, 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 and not able to get to retailers. But of course, then everything settled within a matter of four to five months and, and, and Aspen was up and running, but Mike uh, had committed to this new path. And that is what I'm talking about when I discuss these feuds. If John Byrne and Chris Claremont don't have a falling out, I don't get four years of the greatest Fantastic Four stories. Um, I don't give Dave, Dave Cockrum to come back on the X-Men. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't get John Byrne doing Alpha Flight on his own, which he did. Uh, and Alpha, Alpha Flight briefly was Marvel's biggest comic book. So again, many times, again, Shaq and Kobe break up, Kobe reboots, uh, you know, while he's rebooting, Shaq wins another title with Dwayne Wade in Miami. Cements his status. You know, three uh, championships with the Lakers, one with Miami. When Kobe reboots, he goes to three straight finals, wins two more titles, and uh, has five, you know, at the end of the day. But I believe those feuds, these disputes, they create new paths. They create new music. Like I said, the Don Henley... Age of the Innocence album, the, the the solo works by Don Henley, by Glenn Frey. Um, they're great. I love that they exist. They don't exist if the Eagles don't break up, you know, for, for the better part of 14 years. And uh, again, certain, whether it's musicians, whether it's actors, uh, sports teams, it's the fallout. I mean, we, we're living in, I, I, as, of, as I do this today, I, I read all these NFL camps and Tom Brady's getting back to make another run at the Super Bowl, and, and you, you go, wow, it's been a couple years now since he left New England. And, and, and now he's this giant icon in Tampa Bay. Again, was that a feud? It, it, it felt like it. 
um, you know, after all those that success in New England, he left, and now he is bringing huge attention, accolades, awards, and achievements to uh, and championships to, to to Tampa Bay. So that is why we are doing this feud series. I love Mark Silvestri. Think he's a ridiculously talented guy. Don't know why uh, things uh, separated. Like I said, I think sometimes you know the talent just wants to fly on their own, and sometimes there's um, the, the the way out. Uh, we, I've done it myself. You can make it painful. You can make it peaceful. It's it's a coin toss. Are you going to make it painful or peaceful? Sometimes it's peaceful. Sometimes it, it's painful. In this case, I think the pain was limited. It was only a four to five month impasse. But in that time, we got those great DC comics again. And Mike went on to write and do uh, Superman storylines. Maybe it was in action comics. Maybe it was in stup- Superman. But again, he was he he really became a producer. Of, of high-end superhero stories that everybody wanted to have. And again, those those covers and that work that he did for Marvel, those ultimate comics, he did, he drew Cable. I was so thrilled he drew Cable. So again, um, you know, the, 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 these are really fun times, fun memories. So that is another feud in the books, a feud that created a new path, some new work, some exciting stuff that we all got to enjoy. Now, this is the period, the time in the window of the show that I share with you guys the reviews that you're leaving for me because we need your reviews. We need them because they matter, they resonate, and uh, and 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 they 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 just mean a great deal to everybody here. Hard at work on the show, and and it helps our platform. It helps get word of mouth out. Thank you in advance for leaving these reviews. Um, I look down, I see a brand new review. It's from Cementor, C-E-M-E-N-T-O-R, Cementor. It's brief. It's nice. I'm going to share it with you now at the end of every show. If you happen to leave a review, I will read it on the show. I will read it on air during this podcast. This says, Rob is my childhood hero, and it hits the nostalgia button in the best way to hear him revisit all the iconic events throughout his career with added insight and stories. The same passion that bleeds through his art, is right here in audio form. Thank you, Cementor. Short and sweet. I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you so much for reaching out, for sharing that. Here's the deal. You know that I am all over the internet. I'm lurking. I'm out there. I'm flipping through my Twitter. I'm flipping through my Facebook. I'm flipping through my Instagram, just like you guys. I love hearing from you guys in the comments, in the tweets, um, in the different messages. And on Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, the whole name, Boy, that's a mouthful. What the blue check mark says that it's really me, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Much simpler, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Um, on Facebook, I'm all over. It's me. Uh, I love reading your comments. I love interacting with you guys. I love chatting back and forth and sharing ideas and concepts and enthusiasm and energy. Um, you guys mean the world to me. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Um, for spreading the word of mouth on this show and sharing your enthusiasm as you guys often do. Um, I could not appreciate it more. I do appreciate it so much. Thank you guys for hanging with me today. We're going to continue this feud series. There are some crazy ones ahead, but this one was, it, it, it opened up the acceptance for the 90s all over again. Mike Mike's Turner was that resonant. Um, it brought us all back out to the fold. If I didn't cover, again, I went on to do a new X-Force miniseries for um, Marvel, I did covers for Cable Deadpool. Mark Silvestri does a Grant Morrison X-Men story that is one for the ages. Um, you know, obviously Jim is now out of retirement. The 90s kind of 
came back in this moment, and I believe Mike was the was the forebearer of all of it, and and, and I really want to kind of drive that home. And so uh, these feuds, the feuds aren't as important as the path taken post feud. And that's what we're here to discuss. And we'll be here again to do it with you next time. In the meantime, you guys know the deal. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 